During these early Sundays in January, we have been looking in Matthew's gospel, sort of recording the episodes Matthew tells us about the early days of Jesus' ministry, and we're going to continue that today, but we're going to actually back up just a little bit uh, for reasons that hopefully will be obvious by the time we're done this morning. Last week we were in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to back up to Matthew chapter 2 this morning and sort of jump in, as we often do, into the middle of a story. The beginning of Matthew 2 tells the story of the visit of the Magi, or the wise men. Uh, And you recall how from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at that story, they came to Bethlehem, or rather they came to Jerusalem, to inquire of King Herod, where this one who was king of the Jews had been born. and, And Herod sent them on a search for the child, and they went off to Bethlehem. Well, today we pick up where that story left off in Matthew 2, verse 13. Let me invite you to follow along as we read there. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing unto you through Christ. Amen. Well, you will sometimes hear it said that as New Testament Christians, we live in the shadow of the cross. It's a a phrase that is sometimes used to express the fact that everything we do should be shaped by that instrument of death. An instrument of death which God in His providential power in turn used to bring about our salvation. Everything about our lives is defined by that moment. Well, if it's true that the cross has a shadow then so does the manger. 
Typically, we think of the manger in positive terms. We bring the manger out and put it on display during the Christmas season as a symbol of joy and amazement and wonder. The, the manger stands as a symbol of the fact that our God has put on flesh and has come to live among us and that this is the source of our joy in life. But as Matthew's gospel reminds us, the manger is not all goodness and light. The manger is also a cause for anger, violence, and hatred. Today's story tells how King Herod responded to the news of Jesus' birth with a murderous rampage. Threatened by the news that someone else who now claimed the title King of the Jews, a title which he believed belonged to him, that such a one had come into the world, Herod reacted and responded by ordering the destruction of all the boys who were age two or younger in and around Bethlehem just to make sure he didn't miss anybody. When you're that desperate to hold on to power, you'll do anything. Now, skeptics will quickly point out that, that we don't have any other historical records of this event outside these words recorded in Matthew 2, and that is true. No other historian, no other historical source mentions this episode, but what we can say without a doubt is that this episode is entirely in line with what we know about King Herod based on other historical sources. The Jewish historian Josephus, for example, tells us that Herod ordered the death of at least one wife and three of his own sons because he viewed them as threats to his power. That's how paranoid he was. And so if he will not flinch at the thought of killing his own family, you can rest assured he wouldn't be the least bit bothered by destroying the lives of some innocent children if that's what it took to hold on to his throne but even more importantly, this bloody episode lines up entirely with the kind of reaction that Jesus tended to evoke. We might want to think that Jesus was just this nice guy who went around telling everybody to be happy and to like each other and just get along, but the scriptures paint a different picture. Jesus was actually a very divisive figure. He evoked strong reactions both for and against that had a tendency to divide people in very powerful ways. If you were to flip over to the book of 1 Peter, for example, chapter 2, verse 8, you would be told that Jesus is actually a stumbling block to some and that his message is an offense to some people. Throughout his life, that's why some people were drawn to Jesus like a magnet, and others were repulsed by him. And there's no better example of this than the cross, about which we've already spoken. Jesus' way of life was so offensive that the world responded to him with violence. And unfortunately, we are already seeing that painful reality on display, even while Jesus is still just an infant. He's not even spoken a word, and yet people are already responding to him with bloodshed. Even still, we might wonder, 
why Matthew bothered to include this story in his gospel record. We know from John's gospel that none of the gospel writers, and there were four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them tried to tell us everything that could be said about Jesus. As John's gospel would later say, if that were to happen, the world couldn't contain the library of books we'd have to record. And so every gospel writer was choosing from among the material available for them to decide what to tell us and what not to tell us, which stories, which episodes, which events could most accurately convey the story of what Jesus was doing, which leaves us to wonder, why would Matthew include this story? I mean, we've got enough violence and bloodshed in the daily news. Why does Matthew have to rub our noses in it again in the scriptures? I think Matthew's trying to convey a very clear message to us. This terrible story shows just what is at stake in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because while Jesus came to bring light, the world dwells in darkness. And while Jesus came to give life, the world deals in in death. That is the sharp contrast Jesus' life and ministry creates for us. Light and life versus darkness and death. And frankly, there really isn't any in between. Jesus will later go on to say, if you are not for me, you are against me. So to follow in the way of Jesus is to walk in the light. To not walk in the way of Jesus is ultimately to join forces with all the Herods of the world. Now, we might wish there was some middle ground that we could stake out for ourselves, but that's not the way the Bible narrates the world for us. Speaking to a group of early believers, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. He says, you are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So we are either children of light or we are agents of the darkness. Those are the two options before us. What does Moses say to the people in the book of Deuteronomy? See, I lay before you two paths, one the path of life and one the path of destruction. You get to choose which one you walk in. And Jesus is the dividing point. Now, there are lots of ways we could flesh out that distinction and talk about the difference between light and darkness. And in some ways, everything we do as a church should be about illuminating and clarifying that distinction. Every ministry we offer, every program we have, every event we sponsor, every worship service we hold, it should all be about proclaiming and and illuminating the gospel of life, about laying out what it looks like to live as children of the day. But today I want to give that discussion a very specific focus, this distinction between light and dark. And I want to do it by starting in the same place that Matthew's gospel does. As ugly as it is, Matthew begins his story of Jesus by telling us the price that the children of Bethlehem had to pay. Which tells us something important. Children have always been a special focus of the gospel. Later in Matthew's gospel in the 18th chapter, Jesus will tell his followers, If you want 
to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must change and become like a little child. You see, there's something unique about the innocence and the simplicity of childhood that models for us what authentic faith looks like. And at the same time, there is something unavoidable unavoidable about the vulnerability of children that reminds us of just what is at stake. And so if we're going to be serious about being children of the light, I would argue there's no better place to start than exploring how we as a church respond to and treat children. If Herod was guilty of this so-called slaughter of the innocents, a label that biblical scholars have attached to this event, then we as a church need to be busy fostering a culture that welcomes the innocent, that offers a contrast to the darkness of the world. Now today, as many of you know, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It is a day that Christians of a lot of different denominations use to recall the fact that that 47 years ago this month, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its famous decision in the Roe versus Wade decision, which ultimately had the effect of, of legalizing abortion. In the almost five decades since that decision was rendered, there have now been over 60 million abortions in this country. 60 million. Now, whatever your political persuasion may be, that number should send a chill down all of our spines. That's more death than Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Paul Pot combined could even fathom. 60 million is a number that I dare say would even make Herod blush. By some accounts, there's one abortion in this country every 90 seconds. And so by my math, that means that by the time we're done with this worship service today, another 40 unborn children will have been snuffed out. Now I know we come from different walks of life, and I know this is a complicated and difficult issue, but regardless of our politics, we cannot pass that number off as irrelevant or unimportant. If we believe that God mourned the deaths of those innocent children in Bethlehem, and I am convinced that He did, then we should not think that He is unmoved by the continual death of children through the abortion industry in this country. You see, from beginning to end, the Bible displays a special concern for those who are marginalized, for those who are oppressed, for those who are powerless, for those who suffer injustice. I've heard it said that if you were to take an exacto knife and go through and cut out all of the verses in your Bible that speak about our treatment of people who fit into those descriptions, you'd have so many holes in the Bible you wouldn't be able to read it. Now that description fits lots of categories of people, but it's hard to imagine anybody who's more powerless than an unborn child who doesn't yet have the ability to speak for herself. And that is why, as God's people, we have to be willing to advocate for policies and laws that protect the vulnerable among us. Now, clearly, that concern cannot end once a child is born. We have to work for a culture that values and protects the interest of all children, both the unborn and the born. 
And fair-minded Christians can have honest disagreements with one another over the best policies and practices to get us to that end. So I'm not here this morning to lay out a political program for you. I am here to state what is the undeniable starting point for all of us, and it is this. God loves the vulnerable. That we can't deny. That we can't avoid. We can't wiggle out from under that obligation. And so if we are going to be God's children, we don't have any choice. We must love the vulnerable as well. And while there are lots of people, as I've already said, who fit that description today, we start by speaking honestly about how that impacts our view of the ugliness of abortion. Now, having said that, I am not here primarily today to spend an entire morning preaching against abortion. And I say that for two reasons. One is that I don't want to be repetitive. Two years ago on this very day, I preached a sermon responding to abortion and using various biblical texts. I tried to show how scripture should shape the way we think about this difficult issue. And while I certainly don't claim to have said everything that could ever be said about the issue in that one sermon, I also don't really have anything new to add to it. And so there's no point going back over familiar territory. I will simply say that if you're interested, I will make that previous sermon available on the blog section of our church website beginning tomorrow, and you can go back and read it if you want to. But my other hesitation is this, and it's more personal. Preaching against abortion is simply too easy for me. Because I've not personally been touched by the issue. Nobody in my family, or at least in my immediate family, has had to wrestle with the gut-wrenching questions that an unplanned pregnancy or, or even a crisis pregnancy can present. So, so being against abortion doesn't cost me anything. I can say my piece and then kind of go on with my comfortable life pretty much unchanged. But I would argue to you that as children of the light, it is not enough to simply be against something. If we're going to be against what we think is wrong, we must also show why we are for something that we think offers a better way. Think of Jesus. This is exactly what he did. Clearly, Jesus was against sin. There's no denying that. But thank God that wasn't the sum total of his ministry either. Jesus wasn't just against sin. He was for salvation. He didn't spend his ministry just yelling and screaming about what he thought was wrong with the world. Instead, he opened the doors to a better way. He offered a compelling vision to a different kind of world into which we are all invited to enter, a world he called the kingdom of God. And I believe we must do the same. So if we're going to stand out against a culture that too quickly snuffs out the life of the unborn, we must be willing to show how we as a church intend to create an alternative culture. If the world is going to slaughter the innocent, we must do the opposite and welcome the innocent. And so to do that this morning, we're going to start with the obvious and the simple and look at our children's ministry. And talk about how this vital ministry serves the children of not just this church, but this community. And how if we are intentional and prayerful about it, we can use that ministry to offer a compelling vision of a different kind of life. Several points I want to put before you this morning. First, we must be willing to serve children. As creatures who are worthy of our highest care, 
and not simply as people who are means to an end. Let me say that again. We must be willing to serve children as creatures who deserve our highest care and not simply as something or someone who is a means to an end. Let me explain what I mean by that. For decades and decades now, church growth consultants have been telling us the obvious. If you want to reach young adults, you've got to provide quality programs for their kids. And the reason for this is obvious enough. If you can offer something that's attractive to little Billy, then little Billy's mom and dad are more likely to hang around and do some of the other stuff you've got going on. And strategically speaking, that is absolutely true. And churches that have ignored that advice have paid the price. And church consultant after church consultant could tell you stories of how they've gone into churches and, and, and begged and pleaded with them to invest resources in their children's facilities and their children's programs, and they simply haven't been willing, and now they're watching their congregations decline. And that's why I'm pleased that over the years, Bonsack's been willing to invest greatly in children's ministry, both in terms of staffing, in terms of facilities, and a host of other things that make those ministries possible. But there's a hidden danger in this strategy if we are not careful. And the danger is that we become interested in the children only because they are a hook for the parents. The parents, you see, they're the ones we're really interested in because the parents can put something in the offering plate. The parents can serve on a committee. The parents can volunteer for one of your programs or staff one of your ministries or provide some really useful practical insights for you. Kids can't do any of that. They just take up space. And so if we are not careful, we begin to look at children's ministry as though it is just a Bible-based babysitting service to keep the kids occupied while the real action is going on where the adults are. God forgive us if we ever fall into that way of thinking. Because children are not a means to an end. Children are beautiful creatures created in God's image who deserve to be loved and nurtured simply because God himself loves and nurtures them. I remember many years ago having a conversation with another friend as we were both kind of beginning our journey of parenthood and we we had little children at home at the time and 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 his first daughter had been born a little bit after ours and he was telling me one day he said you know this is this is not easy and he said what makes it hard is my little girl is so little she can't even smile at me yet and he said I want to look at her and say look sweetheart I'm ready to take a bullet for you but you got to give me something to work with here <laughs> now of course as she grew up she did but that experience in those early weeks of parenthood taught us all a lesson. Learning to love someone who is not yet able to do anything in return for that love gives us a pure picture of what God's love is like. God does not love us as means to an end. He loves us because it is His nature to love us. And we must learn to do the same. 
and learning to love and serve children who cannot repay us for that love, that very well may bring us closer to the heart of God than just about anything else we do. We must love children as creatures deserving of our highest care simply because God loves them and serves them and not because they will get us somewhere we want to be. Second, if we are going to welcome the innocents, we must go out of our way to provide a place for them that is safe and secure. In recent years, the church at large has been rocked by terrible stories of abuse of children and other minors at the hands of church leaders. And of course, cases within the Roman Catholic Church have perhaps made the biggest splash in the news. But that horror has not been confined to our Catholic friends. It is present within the Protestant church as well. One report issued last year found that since 1998, 200 Southern Baptist church leaders have been convicted of sexual crimes against minors, 90 of whom are still in prison right at this very moment. And those are just the ones who've been convicted. That says nothing of the hundreds of cases of credible allegations that were never pursued. Now, I believe the vast majority of servants in the church are serving out of pure motives, Statistically speaking, the church is one of the safest places anybody can be, including children. But we cannot take that for granted. And we have an obligation to take steps that ensure the comprehensive safety of our children is a top priority. And that's why last year we developed a new set of policies to safeguard children and youth to outline what can and cannot be done. And on the surface of things, that sounds great, and yeah, let's do it, until you realize it cost us something. It cost us money, it cost us time, it cost us manpower, and it cost us inconvenience. And you may think it's great to have those policies until you bump up against them and it poses an inconvenience for you, and you have to alter your behavior, and suddenly it becomes real. But those restraints and constraints are there because we must take the safety and well-being of the vulnerable ones among us as a first priority. We cannot afford to be lax about this. We must ensure their safety and their well-being no matter what it costs us. Finally, if we're going to welcome the innocent, We've got to be open to how God might be calling any one of us to serve children, even if they're not our own. You see, children's ministry is one of the most labor-intensive areas of ministry in the church. Some of that's driven by the safety policies I just mentioned. Some of it's just driven by the practical demands of caring for little ones. And so it takes an army of volunteers to make this ministry work week in and week out. And I cannot begin to tell you how grateful I am for those people who faithfully each week show up to teach and nurture our children, whether it's in Sunday school or extended session or during Wednesday night sessions or any of the other vital ministries that we... In fact, I want to do something. I'm sitting in my notes. I'm stepping out of that for just a second. 
If you're here this morning, either here in the sanctuary or in the CLC, and you serve in our children's ministry in any capacity, would you just stand right where we are so we can see who you are? Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. But we need more of them. Every week, our children's leaders are scrambling around to plug holes and fill gaps. This ministry can't grow and it can't be effective beyond our ability to staff it. And so I can't help but wonder if somebody here today might be called of God to come and serve in that ministry. You might be saying to yourself, I don't have children, or my children have all grown up. And I say, great, you're exactly the kind of person we're looking for. You see, church is a family, make no mistake about it, but our family is not defined by genetic links or blood ties. Our family is defined by a shared commitment to the mission of the gospel. And welcoming children is a vital first step in that mission. And so we all need to be open to the ways that God might be calling us to serve. and Provide care for children even if they're not our own. We must welcome children as ones deserving of our care. We must provide for their safety and we must be willing to serve them. And if we do... We will be providing an alternative to the ways of the world around us. Now let me close and illustrate that by going back to the issue of the day, which of course is abortion. A couple of weeks ago at the annual Golden Globe Awards, which I, I, I didn't see, I just don't typically pay a lot of attention to that sort of thing, but, the, but reports of this were all over the news in the week that follows. One of the actresses who received an award took a moment to talk about how her career and her success had been made possible only because she had the legal power to choose when to have children. Now, she stopped short of saying that she'd actually had an abortion, but I think the message was pretty clear. For her, the ability to eliminate an unwanted and inconvenient child cleared the way for her to thrive professionally, at least in her view. I'm not here today to attack this woman. I'd never heard of her, don't know who she is. More importantly, the book of Ephesians tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we battle against those forces by living as children of the light because light always illuminates the darkness it doesn't work the other way darkness does not encroach upon the light light encroaches upon the darkness and so every step we take to live as children of the light makes the darkness that much smaller And I will admit to you that nothing I've said today is going to bring an end to the practice of abortion. We can pray for that and we can advocate for that and and work for that. but, But in the meantime, we can continue to offer the world a viable alternative. To continue to cast a vision of a different kind of life. Because we live in a world that in many ways is a world still run by Herod. A world that's quick and ready to destroy whatever and whoever is inconvenient or unwanted. But the world 
while it is eager to slaughter the innocent, needs a different vision of life. And so we must be ready to create a world that welcomes the innocent and cares for them and nurtures them in light of the kingdom of God. Because one day Jesus was surrounded by a crowd of people and he knelt down and motioned for a child to come over and join him, which was an odd thing for a rabbi to do at a time when children were believed to be seen and not heard. And he took that little child and sort of put him on display in front of this crowd of religious professionals. And he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Let's hope for nothing less. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you and praise you that you have welcomed us while we were certainly an inconvenience for you and while we caused you great pain and suffering, you welcomed us nonetheless and you poured yourself out on us in the ministry and the life and the death of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that hospitality and that kindness and that mercy. And yet, oh God, we confess to you this morning all the ways that we so quickly shut others out when they become an inconvenience to us. The voices of the poor, the outcast, and the marginalized, those who don't fit well and easily within our stereotypes and our pigeonholes. But most of all on this day, we confess all the ways that we are quick to close our hearts to the children you send among us. So make us open-hearted and open-handed that we might receive them with the care and the protection and the nurture that you have shown to us. May we live as children of the light so that the darkness may continue to shrink. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I said, Jesus, even though it's not easy for him, it cost him greatly. He offers us the gift of eternal life for all who will accept it. If that's not something you've ever done this morning, then as we close out this time of service, I, I would just invite you to consider that that gift, that gift of life, to receive the eternity that he stands ready to give you. Come forward while we sing. If you need a church home, you're looking to connect with other believers, anything else you want to make public, I'll be here. But the call is to all of us is to receive the gift. Let's stand and worship him.